Sunday morning is the best morning slash day of the week. There's no other place that we can do this together and be encouraged corporately to continue on in our faith. So that's what's happening here this morning. We're being strengthened corporately as we proclaim our faith and our Savior administers to us through his word and sacrament. I'm going to pray and I'll ask you to pray with me. God, there's no one like you in all of heaven, under all the earth. You are the Lord God Almighty. You are almighty. Your works are powerful and gentle. You are righteous, full of justice and mercy. You're kind, you're patient, and you have revealed all of these things through the sending of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for leaving heaven taking upon yourself flesh, suffering and dying so that we might be forgiven and raised. Bless us, Lord, as we now open up your word. We need you. Oh, God, would you please feed us grace? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the idea of spiritual warfare. And um, I don't know about you, uh, but what comes to mind for me when I think about this idea, especially because of my own life and story, Uh, When people talk about it, some of the types of feelings and emotions that run through my head and heart are kind of eerie and spooky. I I was brought up in the ultra-charismatic church, which made everything kind of spiritual. It didn't matter if uh, there was a dead car battery, a traffic jam, or an increase of price in the dollar menu. All the people around me just made that into some sort of a spiritual warfare battle. And then um, that was interesting to grow up in. But then I became a Christian. I was uh, introduced to the Reformed faith, and all of a sudden, all of that went away. Uh, Spiritualism kind of got debunked with reason and logic. Everything became explainable and or ordinary. And I want to be super careful in telling my story, because I'm not saying this morning that my experiences with the Reformed faith or the charismatic church represents these circles correctly. I'm just saying that this is my story and experience with them. There's this man who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. His name is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said this, Humanity tends to fall into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. In other words, we as people tend to gravitate always toward the extreme. It's either uh, we have this unhealthy fear and obsession over the spiritual realm, or we end up dismissing the idea of Satan and the reality of his work as if it's not real and to be looked at as some sort of fantasy, absurdity, or um, method of entertainment or amusement. And so um, in light of these things, I'm asking the question, how should we then consider this idea of spiritual warfare? Is it real? If it's real, then how can we discern its presence? What should we know about it? I guess, how do the forces of heaven and hell combat each other in such a way that they go on to affect our lives in practical matters? Really big questions for us to consider this morning. And my goal as we talk about the spiritual warfare pertaining to the human heart is to remind us of the grace, power, promises, and protection that we get from God and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 7. If you're, you're taking notes, I'm super proud of you. The title of the sermon this morning is Spiritual Warfare and the Competing Spot for God. Spiritual Warfare and the Competing Spot for God. For God. 
Three things I'd like to show you from our texts this morning are this. Number one, the warning. Number two, the war. And number three, the judge and savior. The warning, the war, and the judge and savior. I'd like to begin our time and move to point number one and show you the warning. This morning, you might already have started to notice that we're going to do something a little bit different Um, And that is, instead of taking one chapter or a few verses from within a chapter at a time, we're going to pull back from the narrative in Exodus that we have been studying together to look at and consider four chapters. Yes, that's right, I said it. Four chapters. Chapters 7 through 10 of Exodus. And uh, here's why. Because we've now, as a church, come to the part of the Exodus story in Egypt where Moses stands before two gods— The first is the one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And the second is Pharaoh, who during this time was considered to be a deity, a man who was in charge of the most powerful nation in all of the world, but really was no God at all. And in Moses' standing before these two gods, through chapters 7 through 10, um, these uh, four chapters are presented as a unit a unit that pretty much focuses on one conflict, which is a conflict between heaven and earth. The main question that these four chapters present to us, the readers, and also answer is, who is the true king? As chapter 7 begins, it introduces us to the famous plague story. Moses, here in this section of text, is the covenant mediator between God, his people, and Pharaoh. And God's intentions through this Exodus story is to deliver his people out from the land of Egypt from slavery under Pharaoh's rule. Moses' role is to deliver the people according to God's power and word. And if you remember up until this point of the story, Moses and his brother Aaron have now entered into Egypt to proclaim the name of the Lord. Uh, Pharaoh last week um, resisted that. If you remember, after Moses came to him, um, um, Moses said to Pharaoh, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh do? Uh, Pharaoh said, who is that? And why should um, I listen to him? Why should I obey him? Do you know who you're talking to? I'm the world's most powerful leader. And so Pharaoh instead of listening to Moses and God's request, ended up rebelling, rebelling and not only um, kept Israel for himself, but then inflicted upon those slaves, the, the Israelite slaves, more suffering and works um, of service. Chapter 7 through 10 are literally about the, the glory of God displayed through his mighty works as he seeks to free his people through miracles, signs, and wonders as he battles Pharaoh effortlessly. The Lord God, through the sending of this, these plagues, wants to reveal himself, who he is, what God he is, and also reveal um, to what extent his love would go to deliver his people from bondage. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, God says this, I will send all my plagues so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all 
the earth. Four chapters, 10 plagues come. God sends 10 plagues through the covenant mediator Moses on Egypt and Pharaoh. And here are the 10 if you've never read the story. The first, the Lord uh, turns the Nile River into blood. And then he sends frogs. And then he sends gnats and flies. And all the cattle die. Then he sends skin boils on the remaining animals and the people who are in the land. And then the Lord God sends hail, locusts, darkness, and lastly, death, which we're going to save for next week. But in this big section of text through these plagues, this one narrative, there is one repetitive pattern. And the pattern that's repeated every single chapter is this. Warning comes from God through Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't listen. Judgment is poured out on him. After a while, he softens his heart. He listens, begs for mercy. God, through grace, relents and takes away his wrath. And then guess what ends up happening? Pharaoh then rebels after the mercy is pulled from him. Or after the mercy is given to him. That's, that's pretty much the pattern of the four chapters. So pretty much the theme. And so I know that many people, as we, as we consider the God of the Old Testament, have this assumption that the God of the Old Testament is, is this hot-headed, impatient deity ready to pour out wrath at any second on people, turn or burn. But I just want to let you know, through the plague narrative, that this is most certainly not God. Actually, the, the opposite is happening through God's dealing with, with Pharaoh here. God the sending of these plagues is actually being patient and gracious. How so? Well, through the sending of these plagues, which were not fatal, the Lord, what he was trying to do was over and over again, get Pharaoh's attention as warning. Warning of what? Warning, the warning that he gave to Pharaoh in chapter 5, verse 23. Do you remember what God said to him in 5, verse 23? Pharaoh, let my people go so they should serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, I will kill your firstborn. Plague number one, let my people go. Plague number two, let my people go. Plague number three, let my people go. Four, five, six, seven, listen to me, Pharaoh. Let my people go. For if you don't, death is coming. God did not want Pharaoh to perish. He's being merciful to him, firing shots of warnings across the side to get his attention. One commentator um, uh, named J.A. Motyer said this, God's visitations through the plagues were like warning shots across the bow of the Egyptian ship. If Pharaoh had listened to the word of the Lord, no plague at all would have ever fallen on him or his people. Thus, even the visitations of wrath however justly do, are held within the brackets of God's inexplicable mercy. God did not visit Pharaoh and Egypt immediately with death, which their disobedience deserved, but he rather instituted a process of probation at any point of which he could have stepped off the ladder of discipline into the path of obedience and escaped the final penalty. What I want for us to know about these plagues 
is that they were preliminary warning signs of final judgment. In other words, God was working providentially and sending road signs with patience of death at the end. In other words, they were road signs along the way for Pharaoh, which said, dead end, buddy. Don't go any further. At the end awaits you a cliff. Turn now. I want to get your attention. Pharaoh, listen to me. What did God want to get Pharaoh's attention on? Chapter 7, verse 5, that he is the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 22, that he not only reigns in heaven, but also is in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14, that there is no God like him. In fact, that he's the only. And chapter 9, verse 16, that he being all-powerful desires for his name alone to be proclaimed in all the earth. The point that I want to make for us here in this first point through God's sending of these plagues is that God is not only real, but through his sovereign orchestration over the events of life, aka his works of providence, he speaks and seeks to lead us to knowing and paying attention to him. And you might say, well, these, there's plagues here. That makes sense, but our life doesn't have plagues. I understand that. But did you know that the Bible actually says that the plagues were not the only way that God seeks to grab the attention of humanity to reveal himself? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And having been understood from what has been made, this is why people are without any excuse. In other words, Pharaoh was without excuse before God, before the plagues. But now having seen them orchestrated sovereignly designed to get his attention, he was doubly without excuse. No, we are not living in the time of the Exodus, but guess what? We are still living in the same world under the same God, and this same God deals with us the same. He sovereignly ordains and orchestrates the events and details of our lives for this very similar purpose, to get our attention. So we would know that he is at hand that there is no other God but him, that he is the Lord Almighty, the one and the only, that we should worship and proclaim him with our lives and put it on display to the entire earth. The spiritual battle which wages war for our souls is primarily found in believing and embracing this one truth that God is in control of our lives in such a way that not a hair falls from our head without his foreordaining it so that all of it would work out to us knowing him. Every single ounce in detail of your life has called and set up according to this purpose of knowing, enjoying, and being intimately in love with, found in the context of relationship with God. And so I want to ask you the applying question from this text, and that question is this. What is your current situation? What are you going through? 
how, and only you can answer this question, how is God, through your current situation, seeking to get your attention? Through his works of providence, what does the Lord long for you to know? Have you been ignoring the signs? Some of you have been ignoring the signs. The Lord is at hand. Firing shots of the gospel are being sent across the sky of your life. And yet you just still keep running. And you're not listening. And God, in mercy and grace, is just trying to get your attention. Warning, warning, the end draws near. Others of you are in a separate camp, and that camp is this. You are found in the grace and mercy of God. You are found within the shelter of his wing. You're covered, and yet still God works this way. He wants you to continue to fall deeper in love with him. He wants you to continue to understand just how wide and high and deep in love his love is for you. How strong are his promises. How unsearchable is Christ. How beautiful the Son of God is. The Lord, if you're suffering or if you're triumphing, is still seeking to get all of our attention on this one fact that he is in the midst of us and that he wants us. And if we have him, we'll be right where he wants us to be. The, high, the, the answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism it's a catechism of devotion for faith, provides a wonderfully comforting explanation of the doctrine of divine providence. The question in it says this, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer. That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Now get this here. Here's the providence, the doctrine of providence. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Amen. Christian, do you hear the good news in that? There's nothing currently in your life that has happened in the past or that will happen in the future if your life is hidden in Christ that can happen to you outside of the will of God. And even if it's suffering, God is calling you to himself so to tell you that he's the one and only, that he is the sovereign, that he is the redeemer, that he is the orchestrator. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign control. You can rest and take comfort in this. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Your God is in control. Nothing can happen without your Father's will. He who called you will keep you. Hallelujah. Amen. That was point number one, the warning. I'd like now to move to point number two to show you the war. Well, uh, in these four chapters, I, I mentioned to you the repeated theme and pattern, and that pattern was this. Warning to Pharaoh, God's wrath on Egypt and Pharaoh, wrath coming, Pharaoh begging for mercy, the Lord in mercy relenting, and then Pharaoh after the mercy came to him, then hardening. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Maybe some of you have struck a deal with God at one time or another at a point in your life. 
when times got really rough, when you hit rock bottom, and you knew that there would be no other way out to your situation than God, and so, begging for mercy, you begged, and you said, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll give my life to you. And what did he do? He got you out of it. But then, after he got you out of it, it was as if you never talked to him in the first place. That happened to me. If that is you and part of your story, just want to let you know that happened to me in 2008. I hit rock bottom. Some situations happened in my life that if they were to bear full fruition, that my life would be forever ruined. My, uh, everything would be changed about my life. I begged for mercy. I said, God, please give me mercy. If you take away the consequence of these certain sins, then I'll give my life to you. And guess what he did? He took them away. And guess what I did? I acted as if I never spoke to him in the first place once the mercy came. Not too much, long, not too much longer after that, Christ saved me, and I could tell you that another time. But I just want to say that this is Pharaoh here in this story. Seven times in these four chapters, he is warmed. Six times he, he, he begs for mercy. And the Lord says, okay. And then nine times, if you include the last plague, 10, he hardens his heart again after receiving mercy. I told you this morning that this text that we're talking about is the idea of spiritual warfare. And this is what I want for us to know about these four chapters. Is it's that although there is a war raging under creation, in creation, with creation, and the spiritual battle is manifesting in these ways, where is the epicenter of the spiritual battle occurring? In Pharaoh's heart. In other words, spiritual warfare for mankind is found as it pertains to salvation in the heart of man, in his or her own willingness to submit to God. Chapter 8, verse 8, after um, God sends the, the frogs to Pharaoh, Moses says, um, he says, he says this to Moses. Hey, Mo hey, Moses, wrath has come to me now. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. Chapter 8, verse 28. After the flies. Pharaoh says again, Moses, please, this is too much for me to bear. Please plead for me to the Lord. Moses pled to him for the, for the Lord to be merciful. And then verse 32 says this, Pharaoh then hardened his heart. Chapter 9, verse 27, after the hail comes to destroy his workers and animals and vegetation, a.k.a. Pharaoh's kingly economy, Pharaoh comes to Moses and says this, Moses, this time, I have sinned. The Lord is right. He's in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for me. And then verse 34, Moses pleads. Mercy is given to him. And then when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, what did he do? He sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Can you see what's happening here? 
This man loves his life more than he loves God. And his repentance is only partial repentance. It's self-centered repentance. He wants himself as king and his life as king and his kingdom more than God. This is not God. I've, brought, I've been brought to my knees. I give my whole life to you. I recognize that you are my only savior. I am truly going to give my life to you. No, this is God. Forgive my sin. Wrath has come upon me. I just need you to be merciful because really what I want is my sin. Herein lies the pinnacle of spiritual warfare as it concerns the salvation of humanity. The majority of people, listen to this, do not have a problem saying that Christ is their savior, that Christ is merciful. Pharaoh, over and over again, has no problem with receiving the Lord's mercy. You know what the problem is? God is king. Christ is Lord. Are you a Christian? Please answer that inside your heart. Are you a Christian? You say yes. I say praise God. Show me the Lord in your life. Does the Lord have complete reign over every area and aspect of your life? Or have you compartmentalized it and just given to him Sunday morning? Is Jesus just your savior? Or is he the Lord and savior? Notice that those two things are inseparable. You can't have him as savior. If he is indeed not your Lord, you can't say you are my Lord, or you are my savior, but then you take your finances from work over here and then you take your passions and pleasures over here and your calendar over here and you deal with your marriage and family over here and then give to God a little bit of this. Jesus is Lord and savior. When a Christian says that Jesus is Lord, that Christian confession means that he has authority over the entirety of life. God was saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, are you the king or am I the king? And so the same question comes to us. God, from his word, through Christ says, is Christ the king or are you the king? Are you, are you just in this for mercy? Do you know that if you actually get the mercy of God truly through Christ, that it is easy for him to be king? When you grasp just how deep and wide, what, what extent that God went to, to love you and die for sin, when he is, is that type of savior and it clicks in your heart that actually all of your sins are forgiven, like literally all of them, that you're perfect in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ that covers you, then the lordship of Christ becomes a delight. I am delighted. I am delighted in God. The Christian's confession is I delight to give the Lord total authority over my entire being. He gets my mornings before I go to work and my prayer time. He gets my fasting. He gets my evangelism. He gets my relationship with my neighbors. He gets my money. He gets my children. He gets my wife. He gets my entire life. The Lord is at hand. Is Jesus your savior? If he is, praise God. He must then be your Lord. There's this thing um, in this passage, uh, I, guess, I just want to say one other thing. 
that message is, what I just said is not just for non-Christians, it's actually primarily for Christians. That was a call for non-Christians to come to the saving grace of God, but for Christians, the way that we grow in holiness is through obedience and self-sacrifice. So if you want to become holy progressively and participate in that fancy word called sanctification, this is how it works. It is a gracious invitation to come perfectly and obey and lay down your life for the king. And even if you mess up obeying along the way, you're still considered perfect, so you have the strength to continue to be sanctified. Um, this is how Satan actually works. How does Satan get you or keep you from embracing Christ as Lord? You know what he says? You're the king. You are the king. This life is yours. Your family, yours. Your work, yours. Your entire life, yours. You can have all these glories and all these pleasures if you do not submit to God. And inwardly, inside your heart, you hear him knocking. The Lord's like, submit to me. Submit to me, I love you. I'll deal with you graciously. I'll be merciful to you. This is how Satan does it. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to someone to devour. First Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and eyes is the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. The good news for the Christian is that since you have been filled with the power of God, you can choose righteousness and slay your sin. If you're not a Christian, you don't have power to do that. Um, what position does that then put you in? It puts you in the begging position where you can humble yourself before the mighty God and beg for mercy. I'm not being an arrogant jerk. I'm just telling you how it is. And God, the good news is, if you humble yourself before the creator, because we are indeed the creation, he, through Jesus Christ, will be merciful. God wants to be merciful to you. Um, in this text, there's also this really hard um, question. It's under the topic of apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word, which means the defense of the faith. And it pertains Pharaoh's heart. In this story, throughout these four chapters, the text says two things about Pharaoh's hard heart. Number one, it says that God hardened his heart. It actually says that. And then secondly, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so which one is it? The answer is, is yes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What then do we as Christians not take into the Bible to explain the text? Philosophy. We don't take God and put him into our small, finite philosophical box and say, since we can't explain Pharaoh's hard heart and God doing that, we can reason our way out to prove that he is good. God is good because God says that he is good, and yet he still hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hard, Pharaoh still hardened his heart. Pharaoh's responsible for his hard heart, and God is not. How is that fair? 
I don't know. I don't even know if that's the right question to ask. Why? Because we lose our cell phones and our keys at home for hours only to find them in the place that we left them last on the kitchen table. And yet in our finite minds, we think that we can ascend to God. But who are we, O man, to answer back to God? Shall what is made say to its maker, why have you made me like this? What then is the gospel call? The gospel call is still to believe that God is good and that he will have mercy on those who ask for mercy. What then is your response? The thing that I'm asking you to do today, I'm asking you to repent and believe the gospel. Tell God that you're sorry for your sin. Turn from it. The Lord will be merciful to you. He wants to be merciful to you. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. In fact, God's sovereignty happens through free choice and will. If that doesn't bend your mind, I don't know what does. I guess if I summarize point two, it's this. I just want to let you know, Satan is after your soul. He doesn't come with a pitchfork and a red suit and horns to get you to do evil things. He comes as an angel dressed in light to seduce you by ordinary things in this world so that you love your life and this world more than Christ. Please know that. The spiritual battle is found in the ordinary. And Jesus Christ wants to give you himself freely so you can be covered and protected. I'd like to close our time now in the final point, and I'd like to show you how Christ is both the judge and he is the savior. Um, in this story, if you take time to read it, what you'll see is how in all of these plagues of judgment as they're placed on Egypt, God saves and protects his people from any ounce of it touching them. In the story, beginning in chapter 8, God sets apart his people, takes them out of Egypt, puts them in Goshen, and starts to send the plagues, and all of the plagues never end up touching his people. And who are his people up into this story? What have they been like? They have been doubters, sinners, tempted to worship false gods, and think that God's promises aren't real. And yet God even in that last chapter that we saw last week, in their, in their hesitancy to believe in him fully or really listen and obey, yet God, in this plague narrative, sets them apart and protects them. Why? Because they deserved it? No. Because God is faithful to his name. And before they ever even did anything, he chose them, set them apart, and predestined them to be objects of his mercy. So their sin and failure and doubt does not keep them from inheriting or receiving the blessings of grace. But God's faithfulness does. As we get from the Old Testament to the New, looking forward to the Savior, these attributes displayed from this text in God are actually found in Christ. In the text, we have God's judgment and salvation. And in Jesus Christ, we also see embodied God's judgment and salvation. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And in his life, as we read the gospels, what we've seen through Christ is that he had authority and power over all people, all places and events. 
And what he did with that divine power was willingly choose to lay his life down and save sinners so that those who would come to him would receive the grace of God and be protected. But I think we often forget about the severity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is merciful. I'm going to end with that. He longs to give us mercy, but I also want to let you know that he is the judge. And so in his first coming, he was so gentle. He said, um, he said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day, but there will indeed be a last day. Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, I tell you the truth, there will be a day of judgment where all people will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every day that we live is one step closer to having to stand before the judge, and he will judge justly and right. And some people who presume upon the character and grace and mercy of God will not get it in one bit because they only wanted him as savior and not as king. But for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and say your grace and mercy has not just saved me, but has proven your love for me in such a way that I give you my whole life, God will be pleased to extend grace. What is the good news of this story? What is the good news of Jesus Christ found in the New Testament? That he who is the judge also has become the savior the righteous judge in all of his glory left heaven, came to earth in humility and laid his life down so the judgment that you and I should face for our sin has already been paid and met. This is the beauty of Jesus, the judge and savior. Now is the day for salvation, friends. Jesus Christ on the cross took upon himself the full weight and wrath of God it's satisfied. It's met. It's why on the cross he said, it is finished. And for those of you who place your faith on this one humble yet powerful redeeming God, on that day of judgment, he will be pleased to say, come on in. You're hidden under the shelter of my wing. Not an ounce of my judgment will touch you because it touched my son. Therefore, now you as my child will receive my eternal delight and pleasure through the second person of my trinity. If you are in Christ, your life is hidden. If you are in Christ, your life is protected. If you are in Christ, though you struggle with sin and doubt, you will be given the grace and mercy of God because he delights to do this. We have a great and merciful, powerful Savior, Lord, and King. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for being Savior and King, here at our church, our desire is to lay down our crowns at your feet.